Please have that text open in front of you, Matthew 19 and verses 13 through 15. And uh, this particular instant where the Lord Jesus blesses these little ones is recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, underlining its significance in the earthly ministry of the Lord Jesus. And uh, as we saw when we read these verses, the disciples thought that bringing these little ones to Jesus was trivial, that it was an inconvenience. But that was not the case, as we'll see. Now, friends, parents wanted Jesus to bless their children and pray for them, and we can well understand that. They're not the only parents who want to bring their little ones to the Lord. As a parent, it's my heart's desire to bring my children to the Savior in that spiritual sense. And sometimes it's an overwhelming thing because you long for them so much to be brought to know him, but I cannot give them the thing that I desire most for them, salvation. That's all of the Lord's goodness and grace. But as a parent who knows Christ, I know that it's my responsibility to bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And in that way, to bring them to Christ by setting before them his truth, the reality of his work and his person. And I'm sure that for many believing parents, we long for our children to trust Christ for themselves. And it's a heavy burden when parents that have sought to do that, and yet their children have turned away from those things. And some of you have grown up children whom you have raised and taught them the truth of God, and yet, as of yet, they don't believe. It can be so difficult to bear. It can be heartbreaking. But, of course, we keep crying out to the Lord on their behalf, that he would be gracious to them. And in this passage, we have seen the Lord deal with matters really in the home. We see him deal with things like divorce and remarriage and singleness. And now the subject matter changes to these children, these little ones. And so before looking at some spiritual applications, I just want to examine the text together and then we'll go on from there. But look, if you will, at this incident which takes place. We don't know how much time had passed between what had just gone before, but we know that the two things are linked. And Jesus and the disciples, they are in a, a house together. And the Lord had been teaching the disciples more in the light of what he had said about those matters of marriage and divorce and remarriage and then singleness. And really in that context, it would be very easy for the conversation then to include things like family, like children, how those things work out. Now, remember that we said at this stage that as our Lord had gone over into Perea, there were massive crowds with him. And they were all around the Lord and they would gravitate to where he was. And so into that place, parents begin to emerge from the crowd with their little ones to bring them to the Lord Jesus. And the way that Mark and Luke describe the scene is though there are a, a steady flow of parents bringing their little ones in to see Jesus. Just a, a non-stop flow. And the disciples, they see this and they get irritated by it and they are unimpressed and they feel as though this is an intrusion on their time with the Lord. And something that really was not a priority and that needed to be stopped. And, you know, Jesus was supposed to be teaching and speaking to them. It's interesting in the original language that the word used for parents has the sense of it being fathers bringing their children. 
And no doubt there were whole families present, but sometimes the picture that people have in the mind of this text is quite a sentimental one. You know, just mothers bringing their children to Jesus, but that doesn't reflect what is happening. And surely many had at least heard, if not seen, the tender dealings of the Lord with children. You remember in Matthew 18, the Lord had sat a child on his lap to explain spiritual truth and give a picture of what it was to be converted. And so these parents, if they'd seen Jesus, they'd seen his compassion and his, his gentleness and his, his goodness, his character. But more than that, they knew that he was the servant of God. And he spoke with such authority, had power to heal, he taught like no other, and they would have longed to have brought their children to him for a blessing. And actually, it was the customary thing to do in Jewish society. You see, the Talmud said that they were to bring their children to any great teacher of the law so that he could pray for them and bless them. And so, for example, a father would bring his child in infancy to the synagogue. He would pray for his own child, and then he would hand the child to an elder who would then pray for the child, and the child would be passed to each of the elders for prayer. In one sense, it's a little bit like the dedications that we have done where their parents in the fellowship bring their little ones to be prayed for by the church and for us as a church family to commit to praying for them and supporting them. And in the synagogue, the elders were seen as those who served God, who taught his word and were walking closely to the Lord, those with authority to intercede for the child. But Jesus was different level to that. And there was much conversation as to whether he was really the Messiah or not. And so these parents desire for Jesus to pray for their children and bless them. Now, the word used for children means little ones. Now, the other passages use a word that means infant or nursing baby. It's the same word that Peter uses when he speaks of believers being as babes desiring the pure milk of the word like a nursing baby desires milk. And it says that they were carrying their children to him. And that is reflected in the way that Mark says in his account that Jesus took them in his arms and blessed them. And so the parents come and they want Jesus to pray for their children with this unique divine power, with his unique closeness to God. They felt they wanted his prayers on behalf of their little ones. Now, friends, as these little ones are brought to Jesus, we must not think that it's something just sentimental. Jesus knew that these little ones were sinners. Psalm 51, verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Sin is by nature. And so there's no idea that these little ones are somehow holy or pure or righteous or carrying some sort of perfection. But it is true to say that they have a special place in the Savior's heart. And so the parents are bringing these babies, these little ones to the Lord. But then the disciples rebuke them. And the sense is that it is a, a continual rebuking. They don't just mutter at the side or say one thing and stop. They are constantly rebuking these parents. Their sense is that they're really aggressive, that they're, they're threatening to try and stop this intrusion, this flow of parents bringing their babies. And that's when Jesus says in verse 14, let the little children come to me. Do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. 
It says in Mark 10, 14, by the way, that when Jesus saw it, saw the actions of his disciples, he was greatly displeased. Literally, he was indignant that they should do such a thing. And then he says, let the children, little children, come to me, do not forbid them. And so the Lord is incredibly unhappy with what the disciples were doing for trying to stop these parents bringing their little ones to him. And you say, well, why? Why did their actions cause the Lord such dismay? Well, we know, don't we? Firstly, the Lord had such a heart for people and he knew that to act in that way with these people was dishonoring to him and to the gospel. Little ones also are a precious gift from the Lord. They are God's creation and he, he felt a tenderness and sympathy for these little ones born. He wanted to demonstrate his tender love and his care for these little ones. And these little ones also provided an excellent illustration by which he could teach concerning the gospel. And also he was so indignant with them because no one is outside the concern of the Lord. Not even a baby. No one ever coming to Jesus Christ intrudes on him. And so he needed to set the disciples right that they had no place to decide who could and who could not come to him. They had no place to turn people away from him. That is his prerogative. They don't make that call. And so he reaffirms in this rebuke his sovereignty. And so the strength of his rebuke is such that he says, let them come now and don't ever stop them from coming. He deals with the present and with the future. And it's also interesting that he doesn't rebuke the parents, which indicates that he was pleased with what they were seeking to do. They were not in the wrong to come and seek his blessing, to desire his prayers for their children. And friends, you know, you look through the history of the church and the Lord has given the heart of his people a heart for children that little ones might be brought to the Savior to learn of him and if the Lord pleases, to follow him. And we long for that in families, that whole families would seek and follow the Lord. And if you look at verse 14, there is this phrase which has caused some great difficulty, but it says this, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. Now, that's an incredibly important statement. And Jesus is speaking of the characteristics of one who is in the kingdom by grace. Now, there are those who see that text and they use it to argue for infant baptism and covenant children. Now, I respect many of those brethren. But friends, there's no indication here of the faith of parents. There's no mention of parental covenant, no baptism of babies there. The argument that this is inferred from that text is difficult to sustain. Now, there are also those who argue that this text affirms that babies who die prior to the time when they can exercise faith belong to the kingdom due to God's gracious sovereign purposes. Now, the kingdom of heaven being the sphere of God's rule in Christ through grace, they take the view that God is merciful to those babies who die and they are in glory because of sovereign grace and the applied work of Christ to them. Now, as I said earlier, little ones are sinners by nature, and so, as with any who are saved from God's judgment, they are saved because of the grace of God in Christ. That's the only way, divine grace and mercy. And so it's right that any thinking on such a, a sensitive matter 
must begin with the character of God. The God whom we meet in scriptures cares for little ones and he is good. And there's also the suggestion in 2 Samuel 12, 23, that believers will see those little ones who have died again in eternity. When David had lost his baby son through judgment, he says, I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. And so David expresses a confidence that he would see his son again, and that would be in the glory to come, David's eternal home and future. Now, friends, there's so much more that we could say, but it's not our purpose this morning. But I do think there is much to commend that view. I have great sympathy with that view. But I can only go as far as to say, as Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, the secret things belong to the Lord. And to trust the Lord whose character is perfect to do what is right. And so he says, for such are of the kingdom. And then in Mark 10, 16, it says that after Jesus says that, he takes them up in his arms. He lays his hand upon them and he blesses them. Literally, he blesses them intensely. He prays for these little ones passionately and fervently. Surely praying for their spiritual well-being and that they will grow to be strong in the truth and faithful and honoring to him. It's a wonderful scene, you know. The creator, the sustainer, holding those little ones in his arms and blessing them. I just want to spend a, a few minutes just asking the question, well, how are we, what is our role in bringing little ones to the Savior? What are we to do? What is our responsibility? If we're parents or as part of a family of the Lord's people in this place, what are we to do? Well, salvation is holy of the Lord. It's all of grace. And as I said, that's true for children as much as any other. But friends, we need to be serious in bringing the little ones in our care to the Lord in prayer and in teaching them concerning Jesus Christ. Now, that's primarily the responsibility of the parents, but also if there are Christian grandparents or uncles and aunties, the wider church family... You may have no children of your own, but there are those in the fellowship for whom you can pray and you can encourage as we seek to reach out to those all around who've never heard of the Lord Jesus. As a church, we have to think how we can effectively bring the gospel to the next generation, not just in the church, but in the community and beyond. It's a tragedy that there are so many youngsters all around us. They only know the name of Jesus is a curse word. They know nothing of the scriptures. And it should be our heart for that to be changed. One man says, let us draw encouragement from these verses to attempt great things in the religious instruction of children. Let us begin from their very earliest years to deal with them as having souls to be lost or saved. Let us strive to bring them to the Savior. Let us make them acquainted with the Bible as soon as they can understand anything. Let us pray with them, pray for them, teach them to pray for themselves. The seed sown in infancy is often found, though many years later. So what are we to do? Well, we have to remember that children are God's creation. Every baby, every child is a direct work of his creative hand. Psalm 139, for you formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works and that my soul knows very well. And if you're a parent this morning, you need to remember always 
that God has given you your child, your children, as a gift, as a rich blessing. Psalm 127, behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. They are a blessing that God has made and God has given. And in the light of that, we are stewards of these precious little ones and we need to return them to him for his use. Ephesians 6, bring them up in the training and admonition of the law. And so we need to remember that they are God's creation, God's gift. Also, we need to teach them the truths of God's word. We have to teach the children in our care the truth of the Scriptures. Now, that's not just Bible knowledge. That's not just Bible knowledge, but applying it in terms of Christ, in terms of the gospel, in terms of the need of salvation. You know, you think of that wonderful testimony in 2 Timothy 3 concerning Timothy himself, where it says that from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures. And Paul mentions elsewhere about the genuine faith that's in Timothy, but was first in his grandmother Lois and in his mother Eunice. And the influence of, uh, and role of those godly women, the mom and the grandma, on that child's life to feel, feed that little boy with the truth of God. Proverbs speaks about the importance of the role of the father. Proverbs says that a good father teaches his son the wisdom of God. Or Deuteronomy 6, I think it's a wonderful passage which lays out vital principles for teaching little ones. Let me just share some of the things there. Deuteronomy 6, 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Do you know when we teach little ones, it begins with worshipping the right God in the right way, according to the truth of God. And then it says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You see, it's not just about teaching the right theology. It has to be with the right heart. You know, it's not just about imparting truth, but it's got to be the truth believed and lived and worked out day by day. An uncompromising heart of conviction, seeing the Lord in all things. And so parents, those who have dealings with youngsters, let them see your love for Christ with all your heart and mind and soul and everything. You see, teaching children in the right way means to be teaching them about the true God, about the gospel, and it's got to be real in your mind and heart, internal, experiential, not just external. It goes on in Deuteronomy 6, verse 7, you shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. In other words, let the reality of the Lord permeate every part of your life. Let his truth permeate every part of your life. Teach your children, show them your love for him and allow them to see in every situation, every trial, every struggle, every moment, you teach the truth of God. You model what it means to follow. When you stand up, sit down, walk in the way, lie down, every time you have an opportunity. Do you know there's been a recovery in recent times of the importance of set times of family worship, and that's a really excellent thing. Now, if you've tried this in your families, especially with little ones, it doesn't always go as we hoped it would go. But that intentional time together is really good. And when it does go wrong, as it will, 
do what you can and remember that tomorrow is another day. But friends, the danger can be that if we do that, we think, well, that's it, that's enough. Or how often we do it will guarantee certain outcomes. So, you know, if we, if we don't do it every day, then, then that's not going to lead to this. But it doesn't work like that. And it's not enough to sit with your children and read a, a bit of the Bible and then afterwards go and live a worldly life, you know, with the rest of the time. They have to be brought to see the Lord in all things, living before him all of life. You have to teach them the responses in the flow of life. The convictions, handling when we fail and when we stumble. Let them see that. And how you keep short accounts with the Lord so that they see the reality of what it is to walk with the Lord, be real with them. Then in verse 8, Deuteronomy 6, it says, You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Now, simply that means for us, give them lots of prompts, lots of reminders of the truth of God. You know, display scripture, read scripture, sing the hymns together, songs that help them remember the truth of God. It's good that children have lots of reminders of divine things around them. And it says in Deuteronomy 6, when the Lord your God brings you into the land of which he swore to your fathers, beware lest you forget the Lord. It's so important to teach them not to forget but to beware of the way that the world will slowly try and eat away at all the good things. All the good things that you've taught them, you've got to warn them to guard those things, to be active in remembering them because the enemy wants to snatch them away. Teach them the truths of God's word and the reality of that in your life day by day. Also, set the pattern for your children. Model what it's like to follow the Lord. Do you know that your children are watching you all the time? Do you know that they're watching the brethren all the time? They're watching how brothers and sisters deal with one another. They see it. And so we have to set the example. What it means to live godly. You know, you remember Eli, the high priest in Israel at one point, and he was the one who represented the people before the Lord. But his sons were dreadful. They were vile, they were wretched in every way. They violated the offerings, they took portions that weren't for them. They were immoral. Eli went to try and get them to stop, but he was already compromised and they didn't listen. If there's no standard, if there's no pattern, if children don't get that model from parents or other godly brethren, they will get it from their peers and that's a disaster. You know, I can still remember in my own youth, seeing those within the fellowship to which I belonged, godly men and women who modeled what it was like to serve the Lord and to be faithful to the Lord. You know, you cannot raise young people with conviction and clarity if you'll compromise yourself. You cannot give them a high standard of holiness if that's not your own pattern. And so model what it is to follow the Lord. And then friends, love your children. Love them. You know, you know, when I was teaching, and even in young people's work, even in this past week, it is heartbreaking to see children who are not loved. And so love those that have been given to your care. And that means to cry with them. It means to laugh with them. It means to hurt with them, to rejoice with them. It means to joke with them, to sacrifice for them, 
It means to protect them. It means to give them joy and give them discipline. It means to love them in every way. Love your children. And then give them over to the Lord. You know, we can't save them. But we can only trust them to him and plead that he will be gracious to them. You know, if you're a parent and you're still in those earlier stages, if you're a parent at any stage, you'll make many mistakes. We all do. Breaks my heart when I think of all the mistakes that I've made. But I can only look to the Lord and seek to do my best for his glory and the ones that he has placed into my care. And you know, I'm just so thankful for the Lord's great grace and forgiveness. And whenever matters like this come up, it just reminds me of my utter need of the Savior. To cry out to the Lord for myself and for them. And so pray for the children. Pray for your children. I know you do. Pray for your grandchildren. Pray for your nieces and your nephews. Pray for the children that you have a connection with. Pray that the Lord would be gracious. Pray for the children in the young people's work and beyond. Pray that God would be at work. And as I said, maybe you're here this morning and those little ones that you sought to lead to the Lord, they stray. And maybe they're grown up and they seem so far away from the Savior. But keep praying. Keep hoping. For nothing is too hard for the Lord. And the seed sown in those younger years may yet bear fruit. And friends, in all of these things, we just need the Lord's help. You know, maybe you're here this morning and you feel you're really struggling in this whole area of family life. Maybe you've neglected these things at home. Well, you bring that to the Lord. Be honest with him and tell him. And you have a new opportunity today to start again in his grace and bringing those little ones in your care to the Lord and to bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. This is what we must do. And this is our desire. And then as we finish, you know, there is a closing gospel challenge that I need to bring to you. You see, the Lord adds something further. Luke tells us that as he had those little children in his arms, he then says, assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. You know, he takes the opportunity to again proclaim this great truth which he had declared earlier in Matthew 18, 3, assuredly I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. And so he uses this occasion to again emphasize the truth of what it really is to be a real Christian. And unless the Lord converts, unless the Lord intervenes, unless the Lord gives the gifts of repentance and faith, there is no entrance into the kingdom. And he speaks of a total change of direction, a turning from pride and from arrogance and from self-seeking and from boasting. There is no salvation without that conversion, that repentance, that turning. Acts 3.19, repent therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out. It's not that you carry on and live as you always have, heading on the same worldly road and just add a bit of Jesus into your life. That's what many think, it's not the gospel. There's a thorough turning. There's a new direction. There is an abandoning of those things which were once pursued to pursue Christ. Acts 3.26, to you first, God, having raised up his servant Jesus, sent him to bless you in turning away every one of you from your iniquity. 
Salvation is this miracle of grace, wholly the work of God, which demonstrates itself in the life of the individual who is enabled to respond to the truth of the gospel. And so the Spirit of God works to give life and apply the work of Christ where the individual can hear the word, with the inner man to savingly hear, to savingly believe. That God-given conviction as the Spirit of God works upon the Word leading to repentance and godly sorrow which makes the person long to turn away from sin and to trust Christ and to look to Christ. Psalm 119, 59, I thought about my ways and turned my feet to your testimony. Repentance and faith, the gift of faith, where the individual is able to believe in Jesus, to believe, to trust, to be confident in him, to believe that he is who he says he is, the Son of God and Lord of glory, to believe in his work upon the cross, atoning for their sins, to believe his promise, to believe that that saving work was for them. And as they repent of their sin and believe, the realization that they have passed from death to life. And he says, you've got to be converted unless you're converted and become as little children. Well, what does that mean? A little child is humble. They don't have thoughts of personal greatness. They are dependent. And so it draws together that humility of repentance. I am a sinner. The unworthiness. I have nothing. I deserve nothing from the Lord. The humility of meekness, I am nothing before the Lord. The submission, I'll follow the Lord wherever he leads me, whatever the cost. The humility of confession, I will confess Jesus Christ no matter what the world says. The humility of self-sacrifice, I'll sacrifice all my ambitions, but give me Jesus. The humility of faith, I will believe Christ even when the world ridicules. Childlike humility, depending, trusting me, that's how a person comes. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. A true believer trusts the Lord implicitly because he knows that God is altogether trustworthy. And it's when we humble ourselves and trust Jesus alone to save us that we can be sure that we're converted. And so the question for you this morning is this. Have you trusted Jesus Christ? Have you repented of your sin and turned to the Lord? Is God working in your life to convict and to change you? Are you a child of the King? Have you come to the point where you've realized that God is holy, that you are sinful, and you desperately need a Savior? Have you trusted Him and been converted and come as a little child? You see, that's the only way to enter the kingdom. And friends, it's all of grace from beginning to end. And what we pray for our children, that God will be gracious. We also pray for those here this morning who don't know the Savior, that God will be gracious to you and that you would come in this way and that you would know this morning that your sins are forgiven and that you are right with God both for time and for eternity. And so Jesus says, unless you are converted, unless you come as a little child, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child 
will by no means enter it. Humble yourself before the Lord. Repent and believe. It's the only way. No matter the age, it's the only way. And pray that God would be gracious to you in that. Amen.